Our text this morning is Daniel chapter 7. We'll be looking at the bookended portion of Daniel chapter 7. And then next week, we'll continue, this is kind of a two-parter, looking at the center of chapter 7. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. Daniel, chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in the bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast A second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And now down at verse 15. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the spirits and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, 
This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. Let us ask God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask you this morning that you would make clear to us this your word. That you would remind us that you are in control. That you alone are sovereign. And that you protect. That you nourish. That you are with your people. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now is a time of the year in which many people take the opportunity to go to the theater, to go to movies, to go and to see various kinds of films. It's become an American pastime if we think about it over the past few generations. And one of the types of films that many people enjoy are either action films or films of adventure in which there are great dangers to be seen. Well, we know that the great dangers aren't so great, are they? We know that the hero will make it through to the end. We can enjoy the thrill of the ride and not be as scared as we would be in real life because we know that on Star Trek, it's only... Ensign number one in the red shirt that doesn't make it back. Everyone else is going to be fine. And so we can sit back and enjoy it. I happen to like films that depict the Second World War. And it's amazing how calm you can be watching Pearl Harbor unfold or in the midst of the tense battle of Midway because there's no real danger. We know how it's going to come out. Would that it would be that our lives were like this. That we would know that happily ever after would indeed happen. That we would know our children would grow up strong and bright and successful and pious. That we would know our finances would be secure in our later years. That we could retire. That we would not have to be concerned about our wealth. But you see, this doesn't happen in real life, does it? We are meant to go through life by faith. Not knowing the end. Well, maybe not knowing the end in detail, 
But you see, God is good and gracious to us, and He gives to us the end of the story. You may have heard this quip that says that we know the end of the story of the Bible. God wins. And it's true and it's important, especially when the frightening things come out in our lives. And that's what's happening here in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is made privy to a vision of something that is incredibly frightening, that is fearsome. But he is calmed by knowing that God is in control. And so what I would like us to see this morning are three things. The first thing I would like us to see is the fearsome foursome. That is, these four beasts that have come out of the sea. The fearsome foursome. And as if they are not fearful enough, we then begin to see what real fear is. What real fear is. So the fearsome foursome. And then real fear. And then we see a glimpse, a bright glimpse of hope in freedom from fear. Well, let's start then by looking at the fearsome foursome. I want to give us just a little bit of the context of this chapter because it can be, quite frankly, very difficult to understand. Buckle your seatbelts because the next few weeks as we go through this part of Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, there is much that is confusing. There is much that is distracting. And I want you to keep your focus on the central thing. Just as if, if you were at a baseball game and up at the plate, you focus on the pitcher, not on what the left fielder is doing, not on what someone is shouting from the stands, not on what the first base coach is saying. You focus where you need to be focused. And the context here is that Daniel, as we will see later, has been studying the book of Jeremiah. He is studying the scriptures to find out what God has for his people in exile. And he has come across passages in Jeremiah 25, 27, and 29 that make it very clear and specific that Israel's exile in Babylon will be 70 years. No more, no less. Now, for Daniel, this was something that was, at one sense, exhilarating, and in another sense, frightening, because the 70 years were almost up. It was just about time for the prophecy to come true. And so Daniel might have wondered, what will this mean? How will the Lord bring this about? And where will we go? What will we do? Throw into the mix here that this chapter 7 describes really what's happening before chapter 5. This is not chronological, because as we see at the beginning, it is in the first year of Belshazzar. Now, you remember what we said about King Belshazzar. He was not exactly a great king. His prime skill was throwing a huge drunken party. He was a scaredy cat, as we've seen, when the handwriting on the wall was there. Now, Daniel would see this. He was a political veteran. He had been around the Babylonian court for decades. And he could look at this leader and just say, we're in for a load of trouble. This guy has no idea what he's doing. Oh, my. This is a type of fear that might grip Daniel. A fear at instability. Because one thing you could say about Babylon, the king might decide on an off day to throw you into a fiery furnace. But other than that, life was pretty stable. There was wealth. 
there was food. And there was not really any real persecution of the Jews. You'll remember, they were tried, the king tried to integrate them into Babylonian society, but really it was very stable for the people of God. And now, a period of great instability is upon Daniel. What will come next? Have you ever felt like that? That you don't know what's going to come next? You're waiting for the other shoe to drop? You know theologically that God will be there and God will get you through. But you don't know how. You don't know when. This is a time of great instability. The other thing that we are seeing here in chapter 7 is the reason this text is difficult is we are moving from one type of narrative, one type of literature to another. The first six chapters are narrative. They're Sunday school stories. There's a reason we use those stories in Sunday school. We don't set up our four and five-year-olds and do detailed Sunday schools on the scary beasts that we don't understand. At least not if we're smart. We tell them the lion's den story. It's simple. We tell them the fiery furnace story. It's easy to follow. But now we're moving into something different. It's apocalyptic. It's a type of literature that is best described as being like an ancient movie. And I really mean that. What's important here is the visual aspects of the story. It is meant to be visually stunning. It is meant to conjure up images in your mind. We see even here that there are a succession of pictures, one after the other, overlapping each other. And that's one of the things that makes it hard to follow. We just get done hearing about a lion and all of a sudden we're on to a bear and then we're back to a leopard and now we're on to another beast. This is what apocalyptic is. The last thing that I would remind you is that this is the middle chapter of the book of Daniel. It is the last chapter that is in Aramaic, chapters 2 through 7, and it is the first chapter of these series of visions. It is the very center of the book. And so what we are going to see is today the human aspect of seeing how God reigns. And then next week we will look at the divine aspect. So this is the context. And Daniel sees this horrifying vision. The first thing he sees is a great sea. Now picture this in your mind. This is a huge ocean. Like the Atlantic Ocean when it is in the midst of a storm. The white caps are high. The waves pound the shore, pound whatever vessel is on the ocean. They swirl and whirl. This is meant to, con to conjure up in us an idea of chaos, uncertainty. And out of this foaming great sea comes a point of crisis. This would be terrifying to Daniel and the Jews because the last thing that any Jew ever wanted to do was get on a boat. Even though they lived on the coast, they had no business being on a boat. Maybe that's like you. You go out on a little boat on a lake and get seasick. That's what would happen to Jews. So this idea of the sea would be completely frightening to them. And first... A beast comes up out of the sea. The first beast is something like a lion. Now, I want you to notice each of these beasts is like a certain animal. It is not an animal. It is like a lion, but it's also like an eagle. 
right? It is a, a great lion, but it has eagle's wings. Now, this is something that immediately is odd for us. But it is consistent with the scripture because this beast represents Babylon. And Babylon is described in Jeremiah as a lion, Jeremiah chapter 4, and in Ezekiel chapter 17 as an eagle. And a lion was the symbol of Babylon, so much so that, again, history vindicates the scriptures. That just this century, an archaeological find was dug up in which was found a lion with eagle's wings. It was a symbol of Babylon. Now, this is a help to Daniel and to us because this is an easy one. This is the question on the quiz you are supposed to get right. You look at it and you say, well, that's Babylon. And that's exactly what Daniel would do. The picture starts with something most familiar to him. It is a great and fearsome beast. But notice what is true about this beast, that it is not in control at all. As Daniel looks on, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand like a man. This beast is being made more like a man. And then it is given the mind or the heart of a man. And this correlates to what happened at Babylon, isn't it? When King Nebuchadnezzar, who had the heart of a beast, was turned into a man by the power, the judgment and mercy of God. So this beast is Babylon. And right quickly after it, and behold, or we might even say suddenly, now comes onto the scene another beast, one like a bear. Now, again, it is like a bear, but it is, it is not like any bear that you would see. It is misshapen. It is like the hunchback of Noter Bear. It is one side up and the other side down. And it is poised to strike. And this describes a kingdom that was two-sided, but not even. It was like one of these men that you see that compete in arm wrestling championships, where their arm wrestling arm is three times the size of their other one. That's what this is like. And this is Persia and Media, with Persia being much larger than Media, but with the two of the empires being yoked together. One thing we know about this beast is that it is savage. Now, if you didn't think a bear was savage, maybe you've never seen one of those when bears attack video. Maybe you think all bears are like Yogi. They're not. You don't want to be within a mile of a bear because bears are fearsome. They're strong. Is if that wasn't enough, we see that this bear still has its last meal half sticking out of its mouth. It's got ribs in between strong teeth. But something is also true of the bear that was true of the lion. The bear is not in control either. Because you'll notice the voice says, arise, eat, devour. The bear goes on its attack only because it has been given the ability to do so. It is not autonomous either. Then a third beast comes up. One like a leopard, swift, with two sets of wings. What is this beast like? It has four heads. Now, this is even more of a monstrosity than a hunchback bear. A four-headed leopard with wings? The only thing you could think about this is that this thing is scary and it's very fast. 
Because leopards are fast to start with. You put wings on a leopard, it's going to go everywhere as quickly as can be. And that's why many commentators believe that this beast describes the empire of Greece. There has never been any empire that was built as quickly through conquest as Alexander the Great's. He conquered everything that was in his path. And he was known for his speed and his tactics. As a matter of fact, the most fearsome weapon in his arsenal was his cavalry. It was used to crush down on the enemy. And the foreheads could remind us of one of two things. That after Alexander died, his empire was divided into four amongst his four generals. But I think even better, if we think about four, we think about completeness or universality. You know, when you go search for something, where do you search? North, south, east, west, everywhere. That is the kingdom of Greece. Now, speaking of the kingdoms of Babylon and of Persia and of Greece should remind you of something that we looked at about a month ago. Daniel chapter 2. There we didn't have animals, but we had a head of gold. We had a body of silver, of bronze. We had various empires, Babylon, Persia, and Greece, described. This is another way, a more vivid way, even than the statue, to describe the kingdoms of man. And this is important to remember when the fourth beast comes onto the scene. Because we don't even know what this beast is. There's no comparison given. It's like, um, I have no idea. One thing I can tell you is, it's the scariest beast ever. It's so gruesome, so fearful, so gigantic, that Daniel can't even take the time to examine it closely. All he can see is gigantic iron teeth. That's what draws his attention. And there are huge horns coming out of this beast. Horns of power and of strength. And this beast, in a sense, is a bit different from the other three. This is the first beast that shows no signs of dependence. It's not being picked up. It's not being told where to go, told what to do. It is not being given dominion as the leopard is. This is a beast that now seems independent. And that makes it perhaps even more gruesome than the others. Because it is a beast out of control. This beast, we believe, describes Rome. Rome and its fierceness as it went throughout the world, crushing, destroying, putting its boot on the neck of every people. And the ten kings that are described from these ten horns are the complete number of kings that follow Rome. So you see, what we get here is not just a series of past empires. We see, again, this is the entire world system laid before our eyes. Highlighted by empires. But even after Rome, there is a complete number of kings that follow after it. And then at the end... There is a little horn that comes out and displaces three horns. And the one thing that we see about this horn is that it is full of big talk. Literally, big talk. It boasts of itself. It boasts what it will do. It will not brook 
any subservience to God. What I want you to see in this movie-style picture is the horrific rush forward of the power of man thinking he is independent from God. We're going to stay focused. We're not going to try and determine exactly who the three horns are or who the ten kings could be. Because when we do that, all we do is get caught up in ourselves. This is what happens in the late 70s. When England is about to join what would then become the European Union. And everyone was upset and obsessed, not because of the economic implications, but because they were convinced that England would be the tenth country in the European Union. And that must fulfill Daniel. Even though Daniel really doesn't say anything about that. And even though when Daniel asks the angel to describe who these beasts are, the, the angel really doesn't give him any new information. You see, God is not trying here to just give us prehistory. He's trying to describe the great conflict between man, man in rebellion, and God. And so this little horn talks a big talk. It says that it will change the times and the seasons, that it will be in control, that it will change the very fabric of the world. We see this everywhere. Don't we? One of my favorite places to point out to see this, because it's not as fearsome, but if you think about it, it is, is what I call Star Trek theology. Any of you that have watched the movies or the show know that one of the premises of Star Trek is that mankind has conquered all sickness, all mental illness, all poverty, all lack of food, all uh, war, and is now moving onward into becoming their rightful place as little gods. That is much of modern theology. Much of modern secular theology is that we are progressing, that we are evolving, that we are reaching the place where we will become God, and we can finally put God on the dustbin of history. The only problem is, in this story here, the beasts are not evolving, they are devolving. They are getting worse. More frightening. This is a very frightening sight. But it's not quite the real fear that grips Daniel. He obviously wants to turn his eyes away, perhaps. But the real fear that grips him is something else. The visual dominates this story. If you look through, you see over and over again Daniel seeing, Daniel considering, Daniel looking. We see it in verses 2. Four, seven, eight, nine, eleven, thirteen, and twenty-one. Over and over again, Daniel is looking. And you see, Daniel is not naive. He knows how politics works. So, he is not surprised by the ways of empires. You know, it's often said that you should never watch sausage being made or politics being done. Laws being passed. You don't want to be involved in watching the process. You'll look at the end result. But you see, Daniel has seen sausage be made. He knows the ins and outs and the difficulties. And that's not really what is frightening him. But what is frightening him is the wickedness, the brutality of these empires. 
You see, what Daniel sees, his real fear is not a scary beast, but his real fear is that he sees persecution coming for the people of God. Look at what he says here in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. You see, the forced beast goes out trampling and actually destroys or would destroy the people of God, but for the intervention of the Ancient of Days. He comes up after the people of God. And Daniel sees this. Even though he doesn't know these people, he weeps for them. You see, this is the frightening context for Daniel. And I wonder if for us, this is the fear that grips our heart. You see, oftentimes when we look at a passage like Daniel, we see it from American eyes. We look and we try and figure out if Bill Gates is the Antichrist. Or maybe it's Al Gore. Or maybe it's the European Union. We're not sure. And we lose sight of the fact that right now, today, Christians in India are being burned alive. Families are being ripped apart in the Sudan as their children, Christian children, are sold into slavery. Christians in China are being beaten, jailed. You see, that's what really makes Daniel upset. That's what really gets his heart is not that there might be some big bad beast out to get him, but that he sees that the people of God are under oppression and fear. You see, Daniel knows the real fear of the fact that the kingdom of God right now is a kingdom of suffering. You know this suffering, don't you? You know it when you're alone and you wish you weren't. You know it when you try and get up out of that chair and your back hurts. Your legs ache. You know it when the friend that you wish you could help, you can't. You know it when your marriage isn't what you want it to be. When your children aren't who you hoped they would be. You see, there is suffering in the world. And we must never be naive about the reality and the strength of evil in the world. Because you see, it is sin and it is Satan that causes suffering in the world. This is the time of suffering. You see, one of the great lies of the devil is that he is in complete control and has taken over for God. But another one of his great lies is that he doesn't even exist. And that we don't need to worry about it. Daniel lets us know that evil is alive and well in the world. It is not victorious, but it is something we must face. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we live today in a day of beasts, don't we? Some of these beasts have faces and names. They're tyrants. Some of them are systems. Communism. Systems of abuse. Slavery. Abuse of women. We live in a day and age in which it is fearful to live. So what do we do? Do we give up before this great beast with fangs of iron and claws of bronze that destroys everything around us? As we look about and we see the destruction, broken marriages, broken lives, broken friendships, broken churches. What do we do? 
Daniel gives us the answer. The answer is found in freedom from fear brought by God. You see, Daniel chapter 7 is not about future history. God is not simply just giving us the future so that we can see it. Because if we think about it, if he were, why would it be this complex? You know, if you tell someone you're going to take a vacation, do you describe it like this? No, you say, I'm going to get in the car, I'm going to take this route, and here's where I'm going to go, and this is where I'm going to end up. You don't say, and a big helium balloon will swoop down and pick up a tortoise and go to the land of the bears. What? But you see, that's so often how we treat this text. As if it's kind of a fun puzzle riddle that God has put together for us. And the neat part of this is figuring out all of the details. Who are the horns? Who is the little horn? What are the feet? What do they stomp? How long will they stomp? Where will they go? What direction? What is the sea? And you see, what happens is we get modern prophecy experts that take, it almost becomes either like a bad concoction of a dish or a beast itself. We take a dab of Daniel, a little bit of Ezekiel, we grab some revelation, we mix it up all together, regardless of the context, and we come up with a storyline. But you see, that's not what Daniel 7 is about. You see, the angel only really tells Daniel what he already knows. And what he already knows is this. These three things. First, that God is in control. God is in control. This is critical in the midst of fearful beasts. Look how it begins. In the first year, he saw this vision... And he saw four winds stirring up the great sea. And where do the four winds come from? Heaven. God is in charge of the sea. And then as each one of these beasts come out, who is in charge of the beast? Who lifts up the lion? Who gives orders to the bear? Who grants dominion to the leopard? And who is ultimately in charge of this fourth beast? Over and over and over again, it is God. You see, each of these kingdoms are the attempts of men to set up an almighty rule in contrast to God. And God is saying, I am never taken by surprise. I am never undecided about what to do. This is, in a sense, a replay of chapter 2. God is in control. He is sovereign. And if we know that, we should never feel alone. No matter how hard the times are. No matter how many other people fail us, no matter what we wish our families or the church at large should look like, we know that God is in control and that He is sovereign. What flows from this, though, is another important fact. Not only is God in control, but victory is in sight. You see, even though the saints are oppressed by this fourth beast, look with me at verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And in verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Do you feel worn out? In the honesty of your heart, do you feel like the church is losing? If you don't, 
you're probably not being honest with yourself. Because as we look out and we see the laws that are passed in our society, we see God's law ripped up. We see that the only thing that it is unacceptable to be is a Christian who believes the Bible. You could be a Muslim. You could be a Wiccan. You could be a worshiper of trees, dogs, cats, whatever. But the only thing that brings the hostility of the world against you is to be a claimer, is to be one who claims the name of Christ. We look out and we see the church and it cares nothing for teaching. It doesn't know what to believe. We see ancient heresies that had been put down for 2,000 years rise back up again. That God is not triune. That Jesus is not God. That the Bible is not true. We see this over and over again. We see that the church is not concerned with service. Some of you know that I've told you that the church is the inventor of hospitals. The inventor of hospitals. And now just this week, the Catholic Church, the hospitals it it owns, said basically, we don't need you anymore, church. We disagree with you completely on the fundamental issue of hospital care in America today. We're really not so concerned about abortion. Give up this hang-up you've got. Everywhere we look, it seems like we're under attack. It's almost impossible to raise children today. You take them out to the mall and you see people half naked. You turn on the television before you click, you see violence, torture beyond belief. But you see, what Daniel tells us is even though the saints seem prevailed over, even though they are worn out, victory is in sight. Because after verse 21 comes verse 22. The saints are prevailed over until the Ancient of Days came. And then judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. Do you long for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back? Do you long for all wrongs to be put to right? Do you long for all tears to be wiped dry? You see, Daniel says in vivid technicolor. Kids, that's old movie speak for really bright colors. In vivid technicolor, that God is coming, and God will judge, and God will win. And when you know that, a big nasty bear or leopard becomes about as fearful as a Japanese zero at Pearl Harbor. Okay, you might win now, but we know the rest of the story. We know who's going to be the occupying force. We know the way the story ends. God is in control. Victory is in sight. And perhaps one of the most important lessons that we need as Americans. God's plan is bigger than Daniel imagined. You see, Daniel was wondering, worrying, and fearful about what would happen to Israel. And what God reveals to Daniel is Israel is just a part of his plan. You see, God will not just rule over Israel. He will rule over the whole world. He will conquer all sin. He will be in charge of everything, even as he is. And Daniel gets that picture. His blinders are removed. He begins to see that the whole world is involved. He begins to look beyond history and to look to the throne room of God. 
This is something that we need to know and understand as well. God's plan is bigger than we imagine. We have not yet reached our home. Regardless of whether our nation was founded as a Christian nation or continues as a Christian nation, it is not our home. Our home is that Mount Zion. Our home is that celestial city. Our home is that place to which we are going. You know, you don't worry what kind of television you have in the Motel 6. You just crash in the night. You don't worry about these things because it is just a place to stay. It is not your home. And that's what Daniel tells us. We have not reached our home. And so in conclusion, as we think about all that could frighten us and all that could set us off of that path, all that could drive us to distraction, we must remember that we are called to live with our eyes fixed fixed upon the throne room of God. That's where we will turn next week. We will look and see the Ancient of Days. We will look and see His magnificent rule. We will look and see Him in all His glory. Because when our eyes are fixed upon the Ancient of Days, there's no way that we can fear any beasts. And so if you are fearful today, fearful about your children, fearful about our country, I invite you to fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and in him find rest and hope.